Hi everyone, Steve Perman again on the Steve Perman podcast. Uh, this is a, a bit different podcast to normal because, um, of course, there's been International Week and Howard's been in America with his family. So, um, anyway, I was asked to do a podcast for Theo Delaney. And as you're here, um, I was asked, like everyone else who's been guesting on that show, that to, to, to name the eight goals that have stayed in my memory and why over the years. So uh, could be before my career, could be during the career, could be obviously after. So I've been very happy to be part of his podcast. Some very, very famous people have also done it, not necessarily pro footballers, but supporters of, of football in, in our country. So uh, happy to do it. And, uh, and also there's some music played. Uh, according to the era that the goal that I've chosen is from. So they're not obvious choices. Uh, basically, being a captain and then a coach and a manager, I suppose I've always been interested in, in um, uh, not teaching, that's the wrong word, but, but giving people a clue of, of the thinking that goes into various aspects of football. So uh, that's why I chose the the goals that I did. I'm, as everyone knows who's listening, I'm not a, a connoisseur on scoring goals as per the total that I scored in my 850 plus games. So, um, but I think I can read um the mindset of the people that are scoring the goals. And uh, that's what interests me so much. So, yeah, I hope you enjoy it and um, and good listening. And, of course, this is the first part of two parts. So uh, if, you, if you like it, then please listen in to the second one. So thanks for listening and come on, you Spurs. Hello and welcome to another Life Goals with me, Theo Delaney, the podcast where well-known football fans relive the defining goals of their lives. My guest this time has played more times and has lifted more trophies in a Spurs shirt than any other player in history. He's the man known in Tottenham Hotspur circles simply as the skipper. Steve Perriman, MBE. Well, it is my great privilege to welcome to Life Goals... Steve Perriman. Hi, Steve. How are you? Hi, Theo. Yes, I'm very well, thank you. I'm looking forward to this uh, podcast. Great. Because I think it's a great idea, and therefore I'm honoured to be asked to be on it. Well, um, that's lovely of you to say so. I can't tell you how thrilled I am to get you on it, obviously, as a huge Tottenham fan myself. And nobody's played more times for Tottenham than you. That is that is a hard fact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's uh, I've I've sort of included one of my goals because um, I, you probably know this, but I uh, I hold a goal scoring record that nobody <laughs> believes, and it's the fact that I scored at least one league goal for seventeen seasons. So it's more about the length of time yeah. scoring the goals rather than the number. 
but uh, I still I still take it as a, a goal scoring record. That is a that is an actually a very remarkable goal scoring record. But I mean, there can be hardly any other players who've ever achieved that at any club. I would have thought. Well, the seventeen seasons is is good enough. It's, in itself, is a huge yeah. achievement. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I'm sure everyone has a sort of a a, a long injury or or yeah, something yeah, exactly. that just stops even a goal scorer getting one in a yeah. particular season. So um, so it's one actually I'm very proud of. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. And some of those goals that you scored were remarkable, including the one you've chosen. But we'll get to that. I always like to ask before we start: How hard was it for you to to distill this down to the eight goals? Uh, it was very hard because. Um, I've left some brilliant goals out. I mean, mm. some brilliant goals. And I might have been influenced by the explanation of each one. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for instance, I think people are going to be very surprised that I have not put in Ricky Villa's goal, 81. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's such a story behind that from the first final to the replay to Keith asking me, would you pick Ricky for the replay? And I said, no, not not a chance. Because I misread that he was upset with Keith for substituting him. Yeah. But he wasn't. He was upset with himself how he'd played. So I gave the wrong answer. But Keith very soon said, well, I'm going to pick him. I'm, I'm definitely going to pick him for Thursday. So I said, well, that's why you're the manager. Hmm. And if you... If you really believe that, Keith, go out and find him on the bus because he sat on the bus with his head down. Let him know that you trust him enough to play him in in uh, Thursday's replay. And I believe that Keith did that, not straight away, but at some point. And um, therefore, how would Ricky have felt? He would have felt, you know, a little bit better. Yeah. Off of the disappointment of how he had played on the on the first game, the Saturday. Yeah. Knowing that he was going to be able to make up for it and. By Christ, did he make up for it? So I'm talking myself into a mistake. <laughs> yeah. There you go. That's right. Yeah. I mean, everybody comes on and has a list of goals that nearly made it. But I mean, with yeah. your career, with your, the longevity of your career, and of course, you've been watching football ever since. It must have been especially hard for you. But let's start in um, let's start in 1965, and this is. Without question, I mean, there's a Hall of Fame at Tottenham. There's literally a Hall of Fame, but there are there's a handful of players that are synonymous with Tottenham Hotspur. Obviously, you're in it, definitely. And people like Blanche Flower and Mackay, Glenn. And here's another one, unquestionable member of that that handful of players, Jimmy Greaves. And this is in 1965 against Manchester United. What do you remember about this? So I wasn't attached to Tottenham at the time. I didn't join till 67. So I think I got spotted sometime towards the end of 66. Uh, but Tottenham were a successful team, successful club. Bill Nicholson uh, was highly admired as a manager. And Jimmy Greaves was, I would say, an elite group of players round about that era. And Bobby Charlton was one, God rest his soul. And, um, and Jimmy Greaves, of course, uh, was was on that ilk. Jimmy Greaves was a professional goal scorer. Mm. I had the honour of, when I made my debut in 69, Jimmy was still in the team and I managed to play with him for six months. So what an honour when, you know, I I helped Jimmy score one of his goals against Newcastle. And uh, all I did was make a tackle and the ball 
went to the halfway line and Jimmy was there lurking, <laughs> picked it up and turned and run and scored this magnificent goal. But for him to come back to the halfway line and ruffle my hair, it was like I'd been accepted into the team. I think it might have been my third or fourth game. So, but in my memory stands the two games in that particular year, I think uh, Tottenham won 5-1 at White Hart Lane. Mm-hmm. Man United, Best, Law, Charlton, etc. Creron, um, 1-5-1 at Old Trafford. And uh, Jimmy Greaves' goal was just sublime. Greaves changing direction so well. Oh, beautiful football. What a great goal. Fabulous goal. You know, you, when you watch it, you know that he floats over the over the ground. And I had always had that feeling about him and George Best and actually Bobby Charlton as well, that when people talk about, yeah, but on the modern day pitches, how many goals would Jimmy Greaves have scored? And I say, do you know what? He was running on top of the mud mm. and the rest of us were running through it. Yeah. So he, he actually had a bit of an advantage. So the great pitches of today would actually bring him down a bit in my opinion. Yeah. So, um, but it would have made him quicker, uh, probably because of the lack of mud, but um, a truly great goal, a master of his art. And um, as I say, to, to play alongside him, albeit only for six months was a pure, pure joy to see him in training, to see him actually wasn't a great trainer. No, um, he, he didn't want to run in training because he felt that his ability was over that first three or four yards, uh, which actually I agree with. But uh, I probably wouldn't agreed with it if I'd been the manager. Mm-hmm. I'd want him to show the rest of the players how how dedicated he was and how professional he was. Uh, but Jimmy Greaves didn't need to be that. He had this style. He had this demeanor about his game and. Um, a lot of people would say to me, you know, Jimmy Greaves could not do anything for 88 minutes and then Bosch, Bosch get two goals. Yeah. Uh, this wasn't one of those days. Uh, I, I believe that he played well this game, uh, but pure genius. What, what a player. Do you remember when you, where and when you might have first seen this goal? It just would have been indoors, match of the day. They always made a big thing of Tottenham versus Man United in those days. Yeah. They were sort of the two glamour teams. Yeah. Because of their style. And um, so whoever the, the commentator was really talked it up. And yeah. um, so I would have just been, I was born 51. So, you know, I was just thinking and eating and living trying to improve myself as a footballer. Right. So you watch everything that moves, which actually wasn't a lot in those days. No. You couldn't watch a lot. What you did watch, you were glued. And that's why this goal had such an effect on me. Was the whole family glued to football? The whole family into football? Did you watch? Two brothers. Two brothers. Um, My father was a cold delivery man. So his brother actually was the the good player in the in his family yeah and he had one son who wasn't interested in football my dad really wasn't that interested until i came to prominence Mm -hmm. and then he decided and he'd stopped then being a a cold delivery man he he got a job at uh 
Heathrow Airport as a loader for Air France. And therefore, you know, this man who, who wasn't so interested in football then had the chance because of the discounted air fares. Right. If you work there, I think they yeah. got 10%. They only had to pay 10%, not 10%. Right, right. So he was travelling Europe with his mates, uh, with my brother's mates. Yeah. Anyone connected with Tottenham, I'm not suggesting they all got the cheap flight because they didn't. Yeah. But uh, I, I could maybe get them tickets wherever we were playing. Yeah. So I had I had support in, on the in the seats, in the stands, at places like Milan, etc. Great. And what, what makes it a bit more strange that he did travel was my dad was one of these old-fashioned types that said to me one day, Steve, if you can't spell it, don't eat it. <laughs> I've never heard that before. So how he, <laughs> how he managed to cope with Romania and yes. etc. <laughs> I do not know, but, but he did. Oh, that's great. So that's 65. So you, there you are watching it. I mean, you're like 14 years of age watching it and just um, you cannot believe Jimmy Greaves and never mind as well, of course, but as you say, best law and Charlton. I mean, were you a Tottenham fan at that point? Because I know you're from West London. No, no, no. no. Um, I was dragged along by, well, I was dragging myself along with two elder brothers to Brentford one week, QPR the next. Mm-hmm. I can't particularly say that we supported anyone, but mm-hmm. by the way, if you're, if you're paying entrance fee, that's that's supporting the club, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, the old third division, and therefore, when you got the chance to see the top level, you know, I'll say it again: best Charlton, Law, Greaves, Gilzine, Jennings, mm. Mm. Knowles, England. Ah, oh, yeah, it was like the cream. And yeah. the absolute cream and these were full international players of course mm. and uh no foreigners in those days mm-hmm. um i think you'll notice on the screen no uh no adverts around the ground whatever yeah. there was certainly no adverts on the shirts yeah there was no yeah. sponsorship yeah and there was certainly no adverts in the program so right. um so when i look back at that um i think i spent half of my 19 year career with no adverts it was yeah. almost looked upon as dirty money mm-hmm. we don't need that type of money i think that was the the thinking but mm. uh, of course in later years you needed money wherever you could get it from we, we're taking it from betting gambling sites aren't we these, these days yeah 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 which is, uh, yeah let's have some music to conjure up in the mid 60s right the, ten, the temptations get ready we were much of a uh, dancer a music fan not a dancer ever, ever. I think my middle brother, Bill, Ted, the oldest one, influenced me in football terms, certainly to give me an opinion on the game and what I should be doing when you weren't in possession. You know, 22 players on the pitch, you, you're very rarely on the ball, anyone. Yeah. So you've got to do something else with your time that you're mm-hmm. there. And therefore, he told me about, you know, when someone maybe I passed the ball into midfield or someone passed it to me or I helped it on, tell them what you think they should do and don't get upset if they don't do it because there's lots of things going on in the the player's head. So, But it it sort of gave me an opinion on the game and I think led me into being a captain, which was a a great situation. And Bill, my middle brother, was more going out to, what are they called, discos in those days? But anyway, he, he had an influence on me in terms of, 
bringing home his music mm-hmm. and it would all be always been motown mm-hmm. so um it had a particular style about it and rhythm and i went to see uh, a show about the temptations that's then finished i think we were like two days from the end of it up in the west end because it was going to america yeah and it gave it a history of what the temptations went through through the through the different eras mm-hmm. and um the, the problems they come up against etc so uh, fantastic to see that and i knew every word of every song brilliant and if brilliant. someone asked me do you know the words i'd say probably not when you hear it, you just yeah join in. Yeah, yeah. That's the temptations. Get ready, brilliant, and we are, we're we're all grateful to Bill because we've got we've. That's the first of four consecutive uh, '60s soul hits, Motown hits, which I'm delighted about. And get ready, weirdly, was the first uh, first time I ever made a commercial. I make TV commercials. That's my day job, and the first one yes. I ever made, proper one, was that. That was the soundtrack. Is that right? Yeah, right. and about 20 years later, I went to Canada to make this other one, and it was the same soundtrack. And I thought, I've been doing this too long. The soundtracks a, are coming around on a loop. That's a bit of your history, which is yeah. great to know. But it's, it's, uh, it's a great record, that's for sure. Let's yeah. go now. We've already talked about Georgie Best. And, I yeah, I often think of um, Best and Greaves as the absolute geniuses, the geniuses of the 60s. And this is a Best goal. This is 68. 68, of course, Manchester United become the first... English team to win the European Cup. It's very emotional because of what happened 10 years before with the air disaster and everything. Everyone remembers the final, but maybe unless you're a United fan, you might forget that they were in an epic semi-final. Let's play Real Madrid. And the first leg was a tight game, but it was Best who scored the winner, right? Well, George Best himself should be included in this. Of course he should. Aston gained the queue at the far post for the cross if he can get it back. It's a tight game, won by a dribbler. But the dribble is something that was foreign to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Probably why I love the the Jimmy Greaves goal that we just spoke about. Yeah. But but this man was, his body was so lithe. He was so manoeuvrable in and out and twist and turning. And, of course, I played against him. Yeah. And um, I remember once he's going full pelt for the, the byline, the extension of the goal line. And you believe that all he can do is reach it and get it across. And therefore, if you want to block the cross, you've got to now sort of tackle thin air and hope he hits you with the ball. And for going so quick that way, he was able to, get there and turn back on yourself and therefore you just carry on. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure it was wet enough to slide through, but whatever, yeah. whatever the condition of the grass was, you didn't block his cross because he knew that what you were going to do. Yeah. So um, he was a, an imp, wasn't he? He was, he was tricky. He was, he waited for you to dive in on him. And I actually mm. couldn't believe opponents 
that dived in on him because he, he waited for you. Yeah. He knew you were going to come and try and kick him. Yeah. But I can honestly say in all my times I played him, which was probably about 10 times, I never attempted to kick him. Never. I was going to stay on my feet. By staying on my feet, if he passes it off to someone else, I'm happy because he hasn't yeah. made me look a fool. And um, I've threatened to challenge, but wouldn't. And uh, so I had very healthy respect for this man. Mm. And in a way, I was a bit obsessed with him because I would ask Pat, when Pat Jennings went away with him with Northern Ireland, I'd say, Pat, how was he? Mm. What does he do? And Pat would say, Steve, he's just <laughs> like us. He's <laughs> normal. It's normal. It's, it's like one of us. Yeah. He likes a drink and he likes a bird. Yeah. He's uh, normal. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one, one day he come back, Pat, and he said, Steve, hey, Steve, I've, I've seen something that you, you, need, to, you need to know because I know that you're going to ask me the same question. <laughs> anyway, so he's, I said, what is it, Pat? He said, when he takes a pair of socks off, normal socks, not football socks. He throws them in the bin. And so he never wears a pair of socks twice. And I thought, wow, <laughs> this, this is like the pianist. Yeah. He takes the white gloves off and throws yeah. them. I can't produce that majestic sound again. <laughs> and therefore the gloves have got to go. Well, in a way, George was doing the same thing. With yeah. I don't know what was behind it, but perhaps he had a, contract with a with a sock supplier or something that that is a that's actually quite amazing isn't that is an amazing little fact that because like you say when you when you draw that comparison with a with a pianist his feet in a strange sort of way were like his, a concert pianist's hands weren't they they were just so extraordinary like the most exquisite feet we, we've ever seen essentially and some would so, say twinkle toes or yeah yeah i mean he was you know, like it was like all, yeah, like he was like Nureyev or something, wasn't he? He was like a great Absolutely. ballet dancer. The way that, that lightness and balance and everything, yeah, what and that thing, balance. the way you describe it, where you know he takes you all the way down to the byline and he's going at such a pelt. Any other mortal human being would just keep would just got, be gone. Got to be happy to catch it, get it in, but he's probably going to get blocked. But you know, we might get a corner. Yeah, and he got round it and turned it back. Yeah, like incredible, it's, like it's just shelling peas. He was he was great. Yeah, I absolutely love George Best. I love yeah. it. Yeah, and I yeah. heard a funny story one day. I went as an away legend to uh, to Fulham, and I'm going to be taken around some various lounges to talk to the supporters. And uh, I was met by Les Strong, and Les said, "Okay, we're going to go to this one first, and then that one." So the second one we went to, and one of these lounges actually was Alan Mullery because he mm -hmm. was he was leading that that lounge. Yeah. But this this particular lounge, he walks in, there's about 100 people, and he said, um, okay, ladies and gents, and he's talking about himself, who knows who I am? And no one answered. So he said, ah, okay then, so you're all Tottenham people. Right, so I don't have to introduce him then, pointing to me. He said, so my name is Les Strong. My claim to fame was I played here for 10 years, left back, and... On away games, I roomed with George Best. I say roomed with George. Um, actually, he was never there. <laughs> and 10 o'clock every Friday night for an away game, when we were staying away, the manager would phone and I'd pick the phone up and he'd say, all right, Strongy, yep. At George in bed? And I'd say, yep. Because he probably was. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, yeah, great I character. Mean, let's have some more um, Motown. Wow, this is a, this is absolutely fantastic. Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. I second that emotion. Yeah, yeah. Again, the voice, the rhythm, the movement together. Yeah, it was just phenomenal really you you looked in awe at the their their style and their their clothes yeah always immaculate yeah and um you know they talk about hook don't they the hook that gets yeah you yeah and on on the song and you know motown just had the hook absolutely all the time absolutely and in a way if it's an individual singer i i prefer a woman's voice because mm-hmm. i can here it's clearer yeah the lady's voice to me yeah for my ears but when it's a group i like it to be men yeah like smoky robinson the temptations four tops etc yeah. so um so yeah but but lovely era for music lovely era oh, girl, in that case i don't want no thought i do believe that that Fantastic record. Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. I second that emotion. So that that so we're at 68 now. Now you made your debut at Tottenham in 69. 69, which yeah. was actually is a feat in itself to get in Tottenham's first team at 17. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I, I, when I look back, I can't actually believe it. Yeah. Sometimes at talks, I'm introduced about getting in at 17 and playing this many games and winning this and that and etc. And I, th- as as it's being read out, I think I'd like to meet him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but how how did you get in at that young age? They he obviously built it, and it, you know, it's not just any old manager. Right? I mean, this is one of the greatest managers of all time. He's seen something in you at that tender age. He wasn't particularly known for choosing very young no. kids, was he? I think he a number of things have got to align, and the alignment was me coming to prominence. Uh, I was from a very young age and I think helped by my brother's guidance, Ted, the older one, Mm. I was uh, trustable and I was consistent Mm. and I wasn't going to score from 30 yards. I could, I could pass the ball nicely. I used to get it and pass it and move. Mm. Um, Not a dribbler. Uh, Bill Nick's, first instruction to me when I walked in the door was Steve if you play quick easy and accurate you'll have a career mm-hmm. and I don't think that differs from today actually mm-hmm. I mean of course there's a lot more before it and after it but uh, you know just keep the ball moving keep the ball moving have a touch and move it have a touch and move it yeah. and get a new position and so uh, yeah and, and I'm coming back to the fact that it surprised me because when I look back I actually, through the workload of being an apprentice professional at 15, having left grammar school, much to everyone's uh, anger, um, having wasted a, a, a grammar school place for right. somebody else. Right. 
Uh, but who was going to turn down the chance of joining Tottenham Hotspur yeah. as a professional footballer? Albeit yeah, apprentice at that stage. Yeah. But I was traveling two hours on the train there, two hours on the train back because I wanted to stay at home. I didn't want to live in digs. Mm-hmm. And with the workload of the, you know, the training and the weights and this and that and the, the, the everything, the physical exertion, but with that travel as well, um, the weakest part lets you down. And my weakest part in my growth was my back. So I think I, I wasn't out for six months, but I had six months interrupted. So when you think joined at 15 and a half mm. in at 17 and a half, two years mm. and yeah. I missed six months. Wow. Wow. That's, that's quite special. Yeah. One of the things was that in my development up through the teams, I played for the A team, which was the third professional team in the Met League. Mm-hmm. And coming the other way down, much to his credit, was Ron Henry. Yeah. And therefore, we partnered. Everyone used to play 4-2-4 in those days. So me and Ron, left his left foot and my right foot. And I think Ron was the one that made a case for me to the people above. Right. Eddie Bailey's and, the, of course, the Bill Nicholson's. Yeah. So, you know, when you're, when you're getting this leg up from such a good pro, such a man who'd had, you know, the experience of winning the double, et cetera. Yeah. And who was prepared to, I think he was semi-professional then. I think Ron had his own thing going on at home. I think he was a market gardener or something. Right. And um, so he used to come in probably once or twice a week and play for us on Saturdays. But basically that was for his eyes his eyes to see what was going on. I see. On. Uh, that's why Bill, Bill wanted him to do that. So he said, fine, I, yeah. I think so. And I right. think that that he was the one who pushed me and others, not saying just me, of course not. But um, but you were being judged. At that point, you were being judged. Johnny Wallace, our, our trainer, would say to us about doing the jobs. And I remember he called a meeting this day. There must be 15 apprentices. And he said... Look, I've had a talk with Mr. Nicholson, the manager, and we both agreed on this. He said, we believe that if you cheat me on the jobs, these jobs would be sweeping out the gym, cleaning the tiles in the in the treatment room, cleaning the boots, hanging the kit up to dry or whatever. If you cheat me and you manage to get through and get to Bill, Nick- Bill Nicholson's first team, you'd probably cheat him in some way. Mm-hmm. So the clue is don't. Right. And, and, I, and you I didn't, you right? you were being judged. Yeah. Absolutely not. I mean, I that's always been my my game, really. I suppose it's honesty, but it's let's get this over with quick. Let's do it. Do it yeah. right and get yeah. home. Yeah. I so you. Two, I got a two-hour journey, by the way. Yeah, I yeah. Get home. Yeah. So, so um, you you kind of like a model pro at a very young age, at age at an age when a lot of people at that age later on they you, you can get you sort yourself out. Yeah, but it I, sounds like you were a, a very mature teenager in I, that sense. Anyway, I, in in football terms, I was. Yeah, I could listen. Um, you would think that would apply to everyone. It's obvious that it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Some people listen and hear. Some for whatever reason, it has no effect. Mm. So um, I, I could take instruction. And therefore, when I hear the quote that 
I didn't make it. I didn't get in that team because the manager didn't like me. Yeah. I think bullshit. Yeah. He doesn't trust you. Mm -hmm. Because when you're a manager and you pick a team, you're picking the ones you trust. Mm -hmm. Of course you do. You, you, You then fit them together for the best way. But um, but trust, I think, is a very big thing um, at a football club in terms of the performance and consistency. And you know what? I could guarantee that I would run and run and run and run and run. I think I was a better player when the team was struggling. Mm-hmm. When the team was sort of in its flow, I'd be prepared, prepared to step back and let it work itself out. Let the flair players come to the come to the top because that's mm-hmm. their role. Mm-hmm. Um, but in in adversity, my qualities would come out of consistency, of drive, of passion, of leadership. Yeah, and and uh, that's why I that's why I was selectable and trustworthy. And to be funny, I say to the chaps these days because they all play golf. They all played golf back yeah. in the day, and they yeah. all play golf now. Yeah, and I say to them. When I get asked that these one some of these talks, how did you play so many games? I say it's because I stayed as far away from the golf course as I possibly <laughs> could. Because everyone I see today, they've all got bad backs. Yeah. They've all got bad hips. They've got bad knees and bad ankles. Well, okay, I've had a new hip. But um it just seems to me the swinging of that club. Yeah. Okay. Okay. If it's a little little chip and putt okay mm-hmm. i'd say that but if when it's the the heavy hit oh surely there's something there's something yeah. going to ride there in your back yeah yeah but you know you say all that about how you know all those qualities were so obvious to all of us who watched you all those years the leadership the tenacity the discipline all of that stuff but i've often heard it said that you when you were very young and when you were coming through, you were yourself, you had elements of the flair player about you and that you sacrificed that. And that actually your brother was, was uh, actually was quite upset about the way you'd done that. Is that true? Yeah. The word to describe me as a, a developing player was a passer. Mm-hmm. Um, flair, I wouldn't quite go that strong. Um, and actually, Graham Souness was a year younger than me. He was flair. Mm-hmm. He was flair. He got sent off in the league, uh, the, the FA Youth Cup final against Coventry. And you assume that's Graham going in that strong on a tackle and showing yeah. his studs, etc. No, 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 no. Because he was the sort of star type player, they would be kicking him and kicking him and kicking him and eventually retaliated mm-hmm. and got sent off. So it wasn't, he completely changed his game. Yeah, yeah. He always had the ability, and he always ended up with the ability. Yeah. It's just what direction he put it in. Yeah. And um, I mean, Graham fancied himself. You got to say, he fancied himself <laughs> as a footballer, as a yeah. person, yeah. as a looker, yeah. and um, and rightly so, he could carry yeah. it off. It still yeah. does. Yeah. But um, I forgot to mention this when you said about how you got in at seventeen, because I could listen to instruction. Bill Nick trusted me and the team lacked legs. Good mm-hmm. players lacked legs. Yeah. So I was brought in as legs in a, a struggling team, actually. It's hard mm-hmm. to say that about Tottenham, but they were. Mm-hmm. And um, 
So all of a sudden, I'm now in front of 40,000 people. And, you know, I'm not used to that. England schoolboys have played that 100,000 at Wembley. But in general, you know, there's 1,000 there, 2,000 maybe on a good sunny afternoon for the reserves, maybe three, 4,000. So, yeah, all of a sudden, out of energy and wanting to show myself and wanting to be selectable, I'm putting my foot into tackles. And do you know what? Although no one can ever teach you to tackle, you either can or you can't. Mm -hmm. But I had this low center of gravity and was only interested in going for the ball, only. And all my purpose was mine. Mm. And that was good enough to win the majority of the tackles. Well, a vast majority of the tackles. Mm -hmm. And I was prepared to run back and recover to goal when we got caught out. I was like the defensive one of a of a midfield three with me, Mullery and Peters. But the reaction to the crowd when I won a tackle, for me, was like if I'd scored a goal. Yeah. And do you know what they're saying? They're saying, Steve, we like that. Yeah. So you want to give them something they like rather than something they don't like. Yeah. And once I'd offered that to the team and to Bill Nick's selection, I couldn't take it. I didn't want to take it away, but I couldn't take it away. Yeah. So that's that's how I became. And my the passing went out of my game. I I, I believe I could still pass the ball. Yeah, you. But I, yeah. But I think I think there'd be times when I'm actually out of energy. <laughs> right. Pass it off quick. So my brother, I think at about twenty years of age, said to me, Steve. Um, I'm not watching you play again. Why? Because you used to be a footballer and now you're just a runner and I don't want to watch it. Wow. So I said, Ted, um, with respect, you know, Bill Nicholson, the great Bill Nicholson keeps picking me. So I'm obviously doing something right for him. And, And Ted said, listen, Steve, Bill Nicholson is doing the best for his team. I'm thinking the best for you. So I know that Bill Nicholson's going to have more influence on you than I will these days, but I don't want to watch it. Mm. So that was a hell of a sort of thing to yeah. come to terms with. Yeah. And um, yeah. So uh, did he actually? So did he stop coming and for a while? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. How and long did I he think, keep that up for? I think started watching me again when I was about twenty-seven. Wow! So he really stuck to it for a while, for a good while. That's amazing, that's but, but you didn't, <laughs> but you didn't fall out in any other way. You were still fine with no, each other. Absolutely, absolutely. amazing. Isn't it? That's it explained an amazing itself. Thing. It explained yeah. itself, and I explained my part yeah. of it back. Yeah, and um, I suppose I'm so thinking about the next game, the next yeah. performance. Yeah. That do you know what? It's sort of I can't worry about that. I can't afford yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, of course. I can't worry about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And it, I think it was when I when we actually went down. So what he might have been talking about was when the ability went out of our team, and for me to run about was not enough hmm. because we didn't have enough good players. Yeah. Therefore relegated. Yeah. Part of my reemergence as a player was to go at the back and bring the ball out from the back. Right, and this was in the, to to help get us up from Division Two. Yeah, and this was like a breath of fresh air to me, having been in the jungle of midfield. Yeah, I'm now bringing the ball out from the back. 
Yeah. And running at holes and setting Glenn free or Neil McNabb free. Yeah. I knew, having been in midfield, how I wanted the ball given to me. So I knew how to give it to them. Right. So um, the game became like reading a book to me. Mm-hmm. It was like, wow, I can do this. I can dictate this game. Mm-hmm. Not in a Glenn way. Not in a Glen way, mm, mm. but I can influence this game of how good I can bring the ball out from the back. Yeah. And I had no fear. Uh, you know, you, you should have fear because if you give the ball away, you're probably going to give the goal away. But I was good at th- doing what I did. So I think that led to my reemergence and therefore led Ted to coming back to watch me play and part of my career again, which was yeah. great. Because yeah. he, he was responsible for a lot of the early days. So, yeah. yeah. Let's have our third goal. This is yeah. Carlos Alberto for Brazil against Italy in the 1970 finals. So by this time, you've been a you've been a first team player at Tottenham for six months or so. Yeah. So, so you're watching this through very different eyes from from the first two goals. Yeah. So the thing that impresses me most about this, of course, a wonderful strike, of course, but the Pele part of it hmm. for all his ability, pick this ball up. Just had a little look and saw Carlos Alberto coming down the right. And he just was prepared to lay this ball. It was like a, a golfer making a putt hmm. or the snooker player with the care. And he didn't do it with the outside of his foot and look how good I am. Look, hmm. You know, he, he measured the side foot. And Carlos, it actually had an invitation on it. Hit mm-hmm. me, mm-hmm. Carlos Alberto. And it seems like I'm taking something away from his strike, and I'm not meaning to. But what really impressed me was this the laying of that pass. Yeah. Erzino, faced by Sacchetti. Oh, it's not a bad ball for Pelle on the right side. It's Carlos Alberto. And what a great goal that was! And he didn't have to check his stride. I think someone said to me that it hit a little bit of a bobble, and that's why it did go in at such a... It didn't affect Carlos Alberto's technique, but he sort of caught it with his laces, Yeah, and it went in the far corner. And this takes me back to me and Ozzy getting the sack at Tottenham, unfairly in my eyes, and ending up going to Japan together. Ozzy as manager, me as assistant manager. And the Japanese players of that era, maybe they still do, had a, some sort of unholy love affair with Brazilians. Mm-hmm. Two different mentalities of people, the Japanese and the Brazilian. Mm. Anyway, their opinion was that the Brazilians, every time they do something, they it's a back heel, it's a flick, it's a... Scissor kick, goal, whatever. No, no, it's not. Anyway, Ozzy comes in one day, going to lead this meeting. We had a meeting before every, every day we went out because they needed teaching. And he came in with 20 different videos, all Brazil games. And he said to the captain, pick one of these. So, okay, like picking a card out of a pack. Mm-hmm. Put it on. And he said, I want you to shout out how many touches each Brazilian player has. And they're sort of a bit, what, what's, what's this? Anyway, kick off one. What? One, <laughs> two, one, one, 
two, two, three, louder, one, stop. What's the maximum amount of uh, touches they've had on the ball? Three. Any back heels? No. Any overhead kicks? No. Any nutmegs? No. And it was making the point. Brazil yeah. only do the special when it's called upon. Mm-hmm. When it's called upon. They don't manufacture it for the sake of it. But when they're caught in a hole, maybe caught in a corner flag, edge of the box, the ball's coming at an angle and they've got three defenders behind them. They've got to do something special and then they try it. And when it comes off, it's top, top. Mm-hmm. And I think this goal proves that someone as good as Pele was just prepared to play that ball into that space Yeah, to come on and smash it. So yeah. I, I think that's a great, great goal. Yeah, fantastic goal. And to go with it, Junior Walker, Roadrunner. Fantastic song. Yeah. His junior walker, Roadrunner. What a run of music and goals we're on here. This is incredible. But now, sadly, because it's in the rules, regular listeners know that every guest has to choose at least one Signa. And uh, supporters hear this because this is the rules. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's why he's chosen it. No other reason. But it's a great Signa. I mean, you know. As a as a Spurs man, this is one of the great sickness. I remember watching this. I was I was only a small boy, but I remember watching it with my grandfather, my father, my uncle on a sunny day in in a bungalow in Chorley Wood. This is Charlie George clinching the double against Liverpool in seventy one for Arsenal in the cup final at Wembley. Yeah. So me and Charlie played for the under twenty threes together, and in a way, we was the chaps from North London. And the rest of them were from backwaters, <laughs> as we as we thought. Yeah, I wasn't a real North Londoner. Charlie is. Yeah, and um, I went to listen to Charlie talk at dinner up at Derby, a fundraiser for Michelover FC that I'm an ambassador for. And um, Charlie, in his talk, which I mean, he was being asked questions by Charlie Watts of. EastEnders fame. Yeah. So um, Charlie did not mention our name, Tottenham Hotspur or Spurs <laughs> once. <laughs> Rather than mention our name, he said, Stevie's team. <laughs> he must have just said Stevie's team probably five or six times during the night. So I'm going to pay him back the respect. Yeah. Not mentioning their name. Right. But. Good. But. When I'm crowing about the Tottenham Hotspur first club ever to win the double and how special that was and how great it was, not that I was part of it, but um, you can't say something that special about your club and then diminish Mm. it for somebody else. Mm. 
So any club that does that are well-run, well-managed, a mixture of ability with pace, with passion, with everything. You don't win that double if you're not a special team. So Charlie topped it off. Oh, Charlie George, you can hit him. And I obviously played against them in that last league game where yeah. they won, won the league. Yeah. Uh, we just needed a draw to stop them. And yeah. um, unfortunately, we couldn't. And as I said, I, I was friendly with Charlie. And um, after about 10 minutes, I think it was, I went very strong into this challenge. And he ended up on the floor. And he's looking up at me <laughs> from the floor. And he said... Is that how it's going to be, Steve? I said, yes, Charlie. <laughs> he said, okay, then. And got up and we played. Yeah. And um, no nastiness or nothing. No. And w- what I did to him wasn't nasty. But it, it yeah. So. Um, well, I mean, that that game, that game at YR Lane where they clinched the league is still a, such a legendary game. I've had lots of people on here talk about it. Norman Jay, in particular, the DJ, who was amazing because yeah. he used to go to every game home and away and he was only a kid yeah. but he couldn't get into that game because there were thousands outside who couldn't get he got there like three hours early thinking i'm not taking any chances here it was already packed I and he was, i bet there was twenty thousand outside yeah and he was outside like everyone else and then they hear that they hear a cheer and just for a moment they thought tottenham had scored of course it was the other, the other way side. around but yeah. what but that game was so such a huge game but how was it was it a close game could it have gone either way very very close very close yeah and even after they scored we had three or four chances uh Mm. to get that draw so you know if you want to put the mockers on your big rivals stopping them doing this great event that only your team had ever done yeah you know we we kept at it right to the end and um yeah i never looked back with well (laughs) I, I am sorry that they won it, but mm. not in terms of we didn't give it enough because we did. We had a proper team then. We had a proper team. And, you know, the height in our team, Mike England. Yeah. Cyril Knowles was tall. Pat Jennings, yeah. of course. Chivers. Peters, Chivers. Yeah. Gilly. I mean, we had, we had height and power in our team. And I think they scored from a corner. And... That was very unusual. We didn't concede many goals that year, mm. and it, it it took one goal to um, to win it. But um, and we we could score at any moment from a long throw, from a, a mm. flick on corner. We, mm. we absolutely could, but uh, it wasn't to be. And and um, you know, I've I've won a championship in in Japan mm-hmm. and got promoted with various teams. And when you are in that run of form that they were in. You sort of nick games like that. When it gets tight, yeah. you just nick them. Yeah. There's, a, there's a confidence in you or a, something special about you that makes it your year. And yeah. uh, this is what happened for that Kennedy goal. And um, I, I became friends with George Graham and Frank McClintock. I've seen Bob Wilson in yeah. Portugal many times. But um, I... I really appreciated the Radford Kennedy partnership up the front. In a way, their way of playing, I'm not proud to say this, but we won the cup in 82. 
Hmm. Now, in in the the rest period that you have after that, I popped into the club and Keith was working and we we sat in his office, had a cup of tea, and he said, "What about next year, Steve?" And I said, "Keith, forgive me for saying, but what about we play a bit more like um, them down the road?" for the sake of me not mentioning them. Yeah. But I did say it to him. And he said, explain yourself, Steve. What do you mean? I said, well, when they have a bad day, they get a draw. When we have a bad day, we get beat 3-1 or 4-2. And that must be something about style. And he said, if you ever sit behind this desk, you could never say that. And that's a real manager of Tottenham. But you wouldn't have said it to anyone else very much. Absolutely. You're only saying it because you're in between those four walls, you and and him, right? We were discussing our our style. Yeah. And um, it's a fascinating thing, that rivalry, you know, because sometimes, you know, I've been a Tottenham fan all my life. I mean, this whole thing about Arsenal and and also only to a slightly lesser extent, extent now Chelsea. But then you look at it objectively and you think, it doesn't make a lot of sense in a way how strongly we feel about it. And you talk about that game, you know, you've got to try and stop them because we won the double. You don't want them winning the double. You're kicking your mate hard. And he's saying, is this how it's going to be? You're saying, yes, I'm afraid it is. I'm yeah, sorry. Absolutely. But you hadn't grown up a Tottenham fan. So that feeling that you get, which, you know, which players do get and you, and you want them to get it. And the, where, where does it come from? That 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 rivalry, that Tottenham Arsenal rivalry, and I guess it's the same in Glasgow and Liverpool and Manchester. Generated by the manager, who's setting the tone of your club? Yeah, who's setting the tone? And I like to think in the eras that I played with, I played for the two most successful managers, yeah, Bill Nicholson and Keith Birkenshaw, and the manager ruled. He set the tone. And one of my problems with current day is you've got too many levels. You know, you've got the man on the yacht somewhere and then you've got Daniel Levy and then you've got various titles and et cetera. Mm. And then you've got the manager. Mm. Well, go on then. Who bought Endon Belly? Mm. And it sort of gets watered down mm. Mm. because of the levels. Yeah. Bill Nicholson swapped Jimmy Robertson with um, David Jenkins, mm-hmm. originally from Bristol, but homegrown at, at Arsenal. Yeah. And um, an obvious mistake. Obvious. Within a month, everyone knew it was a mistake. Right. You don't know what's going on behind the scenes, how Jimmy Robertson spoke to Bill in the office or after a meeting or whatever. Mm. Um, but in terms of player for player, a mistake. Yeah. And... So, so Bill couldn't water that down. He couldn't say, well, the chief scout told us to do it. Mm-hmm. Because that would that would diminish his... Yeah, he'd have to take it. He'd have to say, it's me, because it's always me, because I'm the man. I'm in charge. And you take the, the hit and you yeah. take the, for glory. the glory. Yeah, yeah. So um, I like that. Yeah. I like that. And um, so the moment I walked into White Hart Lane, I arrived at those gates... On that first morning, it took me over. But this is the tone that was set by the manager. And it was, okay, wear a red tie or drive a red car and all, all that. Of course, yeah, that normal. But, you know, if, if I finish training, I might walk out of the ground, go on the high road, just before the Bellinaire was a little cafe there. 
Tony's, I think it was. And in there would be the ground staff, the ones who sweep the terraces and fix the lights and stuff. And these are a group of, I call them old men. I don't know how old they were, but I'm only like 16, 17, 18. Yeah. And even when I'm in the first team, I'd still go there and have a cup of tea and they would be having their 11s, mm-hmm. their break. And while I'm queuing, one of them would say, Steve, any chance you could have a shot one of these days? <laughs> and then I'd laugh. And then say, another one would say, Steve, make out it's your birthday. Had a shot next game. <laughs> and there was such a feeling of togetherness. Yeah. We were all in it. We were all in it. Trust me. And um, we all respected each other and we were all at different levels. But um, the number one thing was, and I, I think a lot about this, was I playing for Bill Nicholson or was I playing for Tottenham Hotspur? Well, as famous as that cockerel is and its history, I'm actually playing for Bill. He's the one who's going to dictate my career. Mm-hmm. And he's the one that's going to praise me. Not much. No, <laughs> they, were, they weren't praises. Or, or he was going to dictate my, my life. And um, of course he was under the banner of the great Tottenham Hotspur. And um, that's why I, I question who's setting the tone. Mm-hmm. I think we've got a man now that's setting the tone. He's definitely setting the tone. Yeah. And in a way, some of the other levels could actually disappear Mm -hmm. if you've got the right man. It takes a hell of a personality, doesn't it? And a strength of character to do that, especially like you say in the modern game where there's all these other people with big titles, director of football, head of technical and all that stuff. You've really got to be someone. But I've always thought that the most important person in any club is the manager. And if you look at successful clubs and their time, there's always a manager right at the heart of it. Look at the managers change history. You look at Ferguson, you look at Nicholson, you look at Shankly, who changed the whole club. Club, exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's incredible. You look at Guardiola now. I mean, that all right, they've got all the money, but they had to find the man. And he's and he did it and he did it at Barcelona as well. And it's absolutely right. Yep. It's, uh, it's, an, yep. it's a fascinating thing. Those individuals are rare, but when you get a good one, you've got to hang on to them, that's for sure. So yes. hopefully we're at the beginning of something big with uh, Postacoglu. Anyway. He doesn't, have... he doesn't waste words. He no, doesn't waste words. Not at all. There's he has no an... flannel. There's no yeah. flannel. He and he just... has a real conviction about him as well. I like he's it. completely confident about everything he says and everything he's that's... doing. I love him. Yeah. Yeah. I love him. Let's have another genius. Stevie Wonder, Superstition. Must have been some superstition when they won that game. Stevie Perriman to Stevie Wonder, the two great Stevies of the early 70s there. That is superstition. What a record that is. 
Yeah, my great. God, that might be the greatest record ever made, I think. It's just incredible, that Jeff Beck guitar in it and everything. Absolutely. Let's go now. Right. We're going to go next to a very, very special moment for you and for all Tottenham fans, because every, every victory against uh, Charlie George's mob. That's it for part one with the great Stevie Perriman. In part two, we find out why the much maligned Terry Neal was a liberating influence on his career, why he'd like Lionel Messi to shut up, and why he does not miss owners, journalists and fans. I can recommend his own fine podcast, by the way, simply called The Steve Perriman Podcast, and he's on X as at Steve6Perriman. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are loads more like it in our back catalogue. Good reviews are really helpful in spreading the word and very much appreciated. If you want to get in touch, Life Goals is on X, Instagram and threads as at Life Goals TD. And I'm on all of those too as at Theo Delaney. Other places you'll find me include the Johnny Friendly radio show playing great records on Saturday mornings and the Spurs show podcast. Thank you so much for listening and see you next time on Life Goals. Hi again. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed uh, the goals so far. And the music, um, I feel that I need to say uh, welcome back to Howard because uh, he'll be back for the next podcast uh, with Tom, of course. And uh, so Howard would not have known about this podcast, so it'll be a surprise for him. Uh, I want to say well done to Stephen Clements, son of Ray, um, for getting his job at Gillingham Football Club. I think he started off very well, so let's hope that continues. Uh, Stephen was, uh, of course, at Tottenham, and uh, in after football, in terms of his jobs, he's really been an assistant to Steve Bruce at various clubs. So it was about time that he he went out on his own, and I'm sure that uh, Ray would have been very proud of him as as V is uh, his mum. So, yeah, uh, good luck to Tottenham on Sunday against Aston Vin Vanilla, as people used to call them. They're, we'll lick them, they'd say. But anyway, good luck against Aston Villa. And, uh, of course, I have a link with uh, Ollie Watkins, having come through the system at Exeter City. We sold him to Brentford, and then they sold him on to Aston Villa, and now he's... Now he's representing uh, England various times. So very pleased for him. Uh, hope he doesn't do it on Sunday against us. But um, keep the faith, you you loyal supporters. Of course, um, we've had our bottom smacked in the last two games. But I am fully, fully behind this manager. I love his positivity. And uh, yeah, there was a short space short space between Chelsea working out how to beat our high line and in that time could we get the the equaliser and we were an inch away an inch away on a couple of occasions an offside decision and um and just just went past the toe of Bentecor who'd come on a sub so um yep yeah. Thanks for listening. And uh, again, if you liked it, uh, perhaps you'll listen to part two. Uh, if you're entertained, I think the second half is probably more entertaining as well. And I just want to say, um, uh, looking forward to uh, 
to going to Dublin uh, this Saturday uh, to meet with the loyal Dublin supporters uh, over there. Uh, I think there is a Dublin Spurs. Um, I think the majority of the, the audience will be from there, but uh, any anyone can come along. So, uh, so yeah, I look forward to meeting you all in Dublin. Thanks for listening and come on you Spurs! <laughs>